Day zero is the moment before company formation. When a founder decides to take the plunge, follow their dream, and commit to pursuing their vision of change. On day zero, you'll hear founders tell their story. From the initial idea, through reactions by critics and skeptics, setbacks and successes, we'll cover it all. Behind every company is a founder with ambition, goals, dreams, and wisdom to be shared. Let's explore them together. Hi, this is Aaron Martin. I'm the Chief Digital Officer for Providence, and um, I'm also a Day Zero Advisory Council member. Really awesome to be interviewing uh, Nina Tandon, who is an incredible entrepreneur. And uh, one of the key things I'm super excited about talking to Nina about is this usually in my line of work, we're looking kind of two to three years out, you know, and software and that kind of thing. The work that Nina's doing is a little bit further out, but not super futuristic with, you know, kind of flying cars and that kind of thing. So, so Nina, you and I met at Digital 50. Can you just kind of describe what your company is doing? It's super exciting. And I couldn't wait to kind of see if I could get you on this podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. And it was so great to meet you at that event. So I'm CEO and co-founder of Epibone. Epibone is a company that combines digital fabrication, which is technologies like 3D printing, 3D carving and the like with stem cells. And so we can take stem cells and we can differentiate them into lots of different shapes and lots of different tissues. So we're making bone, we're making cartilage, we're making combinations of bone and cartilage that can help folks who require skeletal reconstruction, whether that's for congenital defects, cancer, trauma, and the like. That's excellent. It's Really incredible to, to, and we'll get more into the details in a, in a little bit, to hear you talk about the technology and how it's evolved and, and that kind of thing. But before we go there, tell me a little bit about your journey to kind of starting a company and, you know, kind of your background and, and you know, what got you into an entrepreneurial mindset and what got you to kind of take the leap. Well, I think the entrepreneurial mindset came from my upbringing. Um, my sisters and I had a little babysitter's co-op going in our neighborhood growing up. And so, you know, the idea of working for oneself or working in a, you know, starting something like that, it, it certainly came from my childhood, but I'm an electrical engineer by training. And so I, I started out doing software programming for enterprise communication software. And I think what really happened for me was that, you know, I had hereditary diseases that had run in my family. I was an electrical engineer. And after undergrad, I started taking classes at the local community college in anatomy and physiology. And I think I started to notice something that a lot of people have really also noted as well, which is that the technologies that run in our bodies the technologies that lead to things like data storage or signal transmission are a lot like the wires and hard drives of the world that we build with our hands, with the technology we associate with civilization. And so I really wanted to explore that further and see if mining that could help, you know, address diseases like the ones that run in my family, like heart disease runs in a lot of people's family. There is a disease called retinitis pigmentosa that runs in my family. That is a degeneration of the retina. And so I specifically wanted to work on neural prostheses and things like that. Basically, technologies at the interface between cells and circuits. And so that's how I found myself doing my PhD 
And my PhD didn't focus on the eye um, entirely. I focused on cardiac tissue engineering, how to use electrical signals to get stem cells to turn into heart tissue. Heart disease kills more people than all cancer combined. And so as the population ages and the world globalizes, it's a really big problem. But tissue engineering, unfortunately, hasn't quite progressed enough to help people in the immediate future um, for those kinds of perfused organs like liver and heart and so on. And so my co-founder who'd been working on bone and cartilage while I was working on muscle, he was getting closer to clinic. And, you know, it got to a point where, you know, we needed a business plan. And by then I'd graduated out of the lab. I'd been working as a management consultant at McKinsey. And I think I became a natural person to ask for help on writing that first business plan. And then I just thought to myself, wow, I really want to be a part of this. And um, I came back to the lab as a postdoc. We incubated the technology for a couple years longer while I was getting my MBA at Columbia. And it became this kind of accelerator almost for the idea. And we launched the company not too long after my graduation back in 2014. So it's been seven years now as a company. And what we've really done in the meantime is gotten our technology through animal studies now into human studies. So we're the first company to ever be greenlit by the FDA to use stem cells to make a tissue product. And we've now successfully implanted three patients. So it's a really interesting time, kind of the end of the first chapter of our marathon, but now really beginning another marathon in its own right. That's incredible. That's that's just an incredible story. So so take me into the room, What you know, kind of the, if you can remember the day that you're like, okay, I'm doing this. What was kind of going through your head? I'm always kind of curious about that because I've started a couple of, of startups and I can mm-hmm. distinctly remember the day I was like, okay, I'm committing to this. It wasn't kind of gradual. For me, it was like a switch. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to go do this. And You know, it's so funny. People often ask about the aha moment. And I think for us, it was more of a slow burn. <laughs> there was like an aha, if you will. You know, a few things a few signals, you know, low power signals that on their own, you might be able to ignore. But my co-founder getting his research published in PNAS and on the front page of the Science Times in the same week. And I thought to myself, wow, this is something, you know, being able to grow bone in any anatomical shape from stem cells is certainly interesting scientifically, but also interesting to the world at large. And I just, I, that was a data point. When I was working at McKinsey, I saw lots of big companies buying little companies. And I thought to myself, wow, we're at this patent cliff. Everyone's panicking about where they're going to get their innovation from. And it seems like all this innovation is coming out of small companies that are spinning out of academia. That was another aha moment for me because I'd left academia thinking I wanted to go to the real world where things happen in industry. And in fact, to kind of realize that coming full circle, if I wanted to be part of the most interesting, innovative ideas, that it actually wasn't quite in industry, nor was it in academia, but it was at that border. I think that was the other aha moment for me. And just realizing that there were dots that needed to be connected in order to make that translational journey successfully made me realize that wow, you probably need a crossover type person to lead this project. And wow, wouldn't it be nice to be that person? So it was kind of organic. No single moment in and of itself was the light bulb, but together it was just impossible to ignore. And I'm so honored that my PhD advisor had the foresight to think that I could contribute to the project. She really was the one who asked me to do it. I'll never forget the phone call. Hey, Nina, 
there's this grant opportunity coming up. They want to see if maybe we can start a company out of this. Would you want to help with that? And I was like, yeah, I'll drop whatever I'm doing and be a part of that. And um, it's almost like a family business in that respect, our origin story. You said something really interesting there about the edge of academia and the, the real world. Can you talk a little bit about what is it like being kind of on that edge, right? So where you're kind of dealing with the academic environment and you're dealing with kind of commercialization or pre-commercialization, that kind of thing. Can you talk a little about that? Well, I think in the life sciences, you know, and I've seen this because I also used to work in software and we see this in biopharma versus devices as well, that the design cycle and, and the timing around the design cycle and how that relates to the timing of IP protection is one that's a really interesting ratio to pay attention to. So in software, and even to a certain extent in medical devices that use hardware and software, the design cycles are quite quick. And so patent protection is, is kind of long in comparison to that. And so you don't find that patent protection really drives innovation the same way it does in biopharma. In biopharma, it takes a long time to go through clinical trials and patent protection is similarly quite a long time. And so I think that the transition, being that it's better matched, patents become so important foundational patents for even starting a company. Patents become, in a way, one of the only assets of an early stage company is, you know, is that patent portfolio. And so what I found that was during my postdoc years, while we were incubating still in academia, but with the awareness that there was going to be the right time to transition out, I think there were a few things that had to come together. We needed to make sure we had a good relationship with our tech transfer office because we wanted to set the stage for licensing that IP and licensing it exclusively. I think we also wanted to kind of solve as much as we could of that chicken and egg problem of you need money to get data to de-risk, to get money to get data to de-risk. So where do you jump in? How do you do that? And I think the academic setting can be really helpful because you can start to apply for translational grants that might be appropriate to take into an academic setting. In our case, we got a grant from our city, the New York City BioAccelerate program. So it was a grant to allow us to do the experiments that served as the kind of go, no go decision around starting the company. We were able to do that as academics and generate IP that we later licensed. And, and so getting back to your earlier question of when did we know that it was the right time to leave? I talked about it being rather slow, but on the other hand, as soon as we got our first funding, we knew that we had to you know, fire ourselves and hire ourselves to the company because, you know, come October 15th of that year, we had money, we were working for the company. So that was a very clear decision. For us, grants were really great. And, and I think that's similar for a lot of really deep tech companies that are coming out of academia. SBIR grants are a great way to transition because academics are familiar with writing NIH grants and NSF grants. So you write a grant, you get money into the company, and that's also then a de-risking to go out to friends, family, um, whatever that first round comes together from and say, look, I've got funding. You know, it's been de-risked to a certain extent. Do you want to match some of this grant funding so that we can, you know, do more than what we've said in this proposal? And that's really how it worked for us. It, and it's de-risking in two different ways. One is, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's like peer review. So you're getting validation mm -hmm. from the IP. And it's That's awesome right. money, right? So there's also kind of right. funding that goes along with it. Yeah. So you can say there's been peer review, really difficult, rigorous peer review that this has passed through. So that serves as a kind of diligence from the purposes of the investors. And then also they're not the only money coming in. 
So that was, you know, a great way for us to get started. We raised many multiples of capital over the the non-dilutive funding. In fact, our ratio is about 10% non-dilutive and the rest is private. That's really incredible. So, all right. So talk a little bit about the technology now and what are the use cases in the near term? And then where do you see it going? Yeah. So our technology takes stem cells and combines that with digital fabrication. So in order to make bone, let's say, um, and you might need a piece of bone, bone is the most transplanted human material after blood. And the only way to get human bone is to cut it out of a human until now. Uh, But so for cancer, trauma, congenital defects, if you needed bone, you'd either cut it out of yourself, that's called autograft, or you'd um, get cadaver bone, which is called allograft or you'd use synthetic implants made out of metal, plastic, ceramic, and so on. What we do is we take two things from the patient. We first take a scan, a CT scan, so that we can extract three-dimensional data out of that and understand the geometry and the perimeter of the tissue we wanna grow. We also take a small sample of adipose tissue from the patient. So we take 10 ml of fat, and we extract the stem cells. There are adult stem cells called mesenchymal stem cells that live inside our fat tissue and bone marrow. We extract those stem cells out, expand them in the lab, and infuse them onto a perfect puzzle piece-shaped biomaterial that we've designed using that CT scan. And we contain the cells plus that biomaterial inside an advanced cell culture system, which we have IP on, called a bioreactor. That bioreactor allows us to feed the tissue with the exact cytokines, oxygen, nutrients, temperature, and mechanical forces that get those stem cells to attach to the scaffold, proliferate, and differentiate. It takes us three weeks to grow bone, takes us four weeks to grow cartilage. And when we're done with our processes, we have tissues that really recapitulate the tissues of, uh, that reside in our bodies natively. It's remarkable that the same signals that drive stem cell differentiation in our bodies can also be used to drive stem cell differentiation in the laboratory. And the cells are the ones really doing all the work. That is amazing. What are some of the kind of the early kind of uses that you're thinking about right now? So we think of our pipeline as being cumulative and interdependent. That is, we have a platform technology. It's really important for us to choose our use cases wisely. We wanted to choose our first use case to be kind of blue ocean, not a lot of competition, high unmet need, so that we could showcase our technology and um, potentially even qualify for certain accelerated approval programs through the FDA. So for us, that's bones in the head and face. That's where shape really matters. The treatment options are not good. And our first clinical trial, our phase one, two, is working with patients who've suffered from either so far trauma or congenital defects. So patient one had suffered a traumatic injury from a car accident. We provided four pieces of bones to help reconstruct his face, perfectly matched. He's six months out doing well. Patients two and three had congenital defects that resulted in facial asymmetry and even severe airway obstruction. So we provided bones to elongate the jaw and relieve those conditions. For our second product, we are layering cartilage on top of the bone. So we're making a two tissue graft, a biphasic graft we call it, so bone and cartilage. That has orthopedic applications. So we're looking at, we did an equine study, a preclinical study where we were going head to head with fresh osteochondral allografts, meaning donor tissues from cadaver. 
We studied those animals for a year and we hope to be ready to go into the clinic next year. That is an orthopedic application with a much larger in terms of patient number unmet need and involves a different type of surgeon too, orthopedic surgeons versus, you know, craniofacial and maxillofacial surgeons. So it's a really interesting journey for us as we kind of migrate out of this niche application towards broader indications in orthopedics and sports medicine. In orthopedics and sports medicine, I guess there's a lot of joint replacement with artificial. Mm-hmm. That's right. Is is this meant to kind of displace that or how, what are the situations in which, you know, this is fascinating to me. And then why is it superior what you're doing versus kind of what already exists in the market? Yeah. And, you know, I would love to see a world in which there's no such thing as a synthetic joint replacement. I would love to see that a company or a cluster of companies like EpiBone that obviate the need for replacing parts of our bodies, you know, a whole joint because of just a couple millimeters of damaged cartilage. It just seems like an approach that is, while effective, inelegant at best. And the younger you are when you get a joint replaced, the less time they last. So if you're 85 getting a knee replaced at you know, and and they have a 15 year lifetime, does it really, you know, that's not the equation we're looking to solve. But people are 40, 50 getting these replaced. And, And the equation there is the more you exercise that joint, the more it will exacerbate that mechanical mismatch at the site of implantation that degrades over time and leads to failure. And if you look at the math, you know, people always ask, well, if we can't afford non-generalized medicine, how are we going to afford personalized medicine? But I think, you know, that's the wrong question. We should think about the inefficiencies in the way we're doing medicine right now. If you're going to get a joint replaced at 40 and you know you're going to need three or four of them over a lifetime and that a revision surgery costs more in terms of time and money to that patient than doing a one and done solution, I think a one and done solution in which we can say, look, you know, you need some new cartilage, let's give you some new cartilage. That to me, you know, is where science fiction has been pointing us, whether you are watching, you know, Marvel movies about Wakanda or, you know, Star Wars or whatever your favorite, you know, science fiction is, there is always some sort of form of tissue regeneration that exists in these, in pop culture. So I think people understand intuitively that replacing our, our, you know, a couple millimeters of cartilage with an entire joint made out of metal and plastic is just not the way to go. I would love to be, you know, an extra in that movie that makes that future possible, whether it's cancer, trauma, or congenital defects. I would love to see a kind of one-stop body shop that allows us to repair ourselves with truly bioactive solutions that are just like what we were born with. Nature is so beautiful and gives us such you know, we often take our bodies for granted, but when they start to fail, we realize how beautiful they are. We'd like to leverage that beauty of nature and biology and help us just extend the high performance period of time that we spend in our bodies by making, you know, taking the cells that grow our bodies every day and just using them to do a little bit more. Yeah. Speaking as a 52 year old, please go fast because it feels like things are starting to break, but you know, I, I, I also think, too, that because of longevity and people, you know, hopefully will be more active, I would say even the folks kind of hitting 80 in the future are going to be, you know, this is going to be an issue for them as well because of, you know, the extension of lifetimes and as well as their, because I think what you're saying is that 
the reason why the artificial joints later in life are probably okay is because they don't move a lot, right? Mm -hmm. But I think that's going to probably change. I think that's a very good point. You know, if we're getting injured at 15 and living until 115, we need our implants to last as long as we do. What's the three or four things that you would tell yourself, (laughs) you know, the the secrets, if you will, like, oh, hey, you know, don't do this or do this uh, or definitely do this. Don't have any kind of doubt about that. You know, you're kind of seven years ago, if you will. Coming from an academic upbringing, I think we'd always been taught, you know, you need to find your mentors. You need to find the guru of XYZ and apprentice yourself and learn. And I think one of our strengths as a company is that my co-founder and I do come from that background and recruit mentors of all, you know, all shapes and forms so that we can learn the things we don't know. But I think something surprising for us is that when it comes time to make a difficult call, like at a crossroads, do we make a certain choice, A or B, that we're wiser than we thought, if that makes sense. You know, like, because past performance is not always the predictor of future performance. So if people have learned lessons from a past that is no longer applicable, in a way, we are more positioned than we thought at being able to make difficult decisions. And so I think I've transitioned from, in my early days, trying to be everyone's student, okay, like to, I'm your student, I'm doing my homework, I'm going to, you know, learn from you and, and apply the lessons you've learned. I think I've transitioned more into almost like a, oh no, I don't know what this is going to sound like, a ringmaster in a circus or something where the way that we kind of power through difficult decisions now is we try and recruit people with very different points of view and try and facilitate and mediate a conversation between them to try and understand what we don't understand and then try and figure out, well, then what's the best way forward? So I think if I could go back to my younger self, I would say, you know, this has never been done before. And there are people that are going to help guide you along your way. But you, Nina and Ick, my co-founder, do have the discernment and the knowledge that you need in order to move this forward. I would like to give her a little bit more confidence, my seven years ago self. I think you're exactly right. It's like we're advisors. We're not in there day to day as board members. I think that's really sage advice for founders. Kind of trust yourself, I think is what you're saying. Yeah. You know, trust your trust your engagement into the details and it really yeah, you're matters. There. Right? You're there doing that job every day. You're living that life. You know, you can take advice from people and take it very seriously, really contemplate it and recruit people who have very different perspectives, that diversity. You know, when you're an inexperienced CEO, you know, you're as I think if you're in deep tech doing something no one's ever done before, everyone would be in that category. So how do you make decisions in the darkness of lack of information? Well, I love I think I had an accounting professor who said, you know, recruit people with diverse and and ideally opposing views because that's the best way to figure out where the tensions lie, where the truth really is. And yeah, don't discount your own experience from being the day-to-day person who is with that. It's similar advice that my doula gave me when I was about to become a mom. You know, she said, everyone's, you know, nothing like having a small baby, whether that baby's your company or that is a human baby. Um, Everybody gives you free advice, (laughs) but actually you're the kid's mom. So you do know you know. And I think, you know, with my human babies, as well as with my entrepreneurial baby, yeah, I would like to 
hope that I would love to go back in time and just whisper in her ear, you've got this, you know, you, you do know what you're doing. That is an incredibly apt analogy <laughs> because I remember our, our first child, we had a diversity of opinions oh. as to, you know, about everything. Right. <laughs> and you have to kind of do the synthesis and you have to kind of figure out like that fits, that doesn't, that seems really dangerous. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> I'm not going to do it's that. So funny, isn't you it? Know? So that, that is a really apt analogy. What advice specifically to people thinking about getting into the healthcare space would you give? So I talked a lot just earlier about having confidence. I, I'm not going to backpedal that, but I'm going to say, you know, entrepreneurship is like the Olympics. And we are in the middle of the Olympics now. Do you, I don't think there's a single Olympian out there who doesn't have a coach. So I would say some of the advice that um, I got that was maybe most useful to me, and I've really taken it seriously with the company, is coaching. You know, I do leadership coaching one-on-one. I do leadership coaching in pairs with my chief of staff and with my co-founder, call it couples therapy. And so, you know, the idea is that if you're in entrepreneurship, your job description changes every six months. So, you know, you need a coach to help you figure out which toolkit you need to sharpen or which help you stay present and also to help you pre-process the stress of the job so that you're not transmitting it inappropriately to other people on the team. And the other benefit that I get about implementing coaching with my team at large is that I also get a chance through this person who does, we are a small enough team that we work with the same coach really for all of us, is that I get information bubbled up to me, obviously not confidential information, but if she starts to see patterns with people on the team, she can flag those to me so that I can stay ahead of it. So I think coaching is a secret weapon for any CEO's toolkit. And then, you know, your question was about healthcare. And healthcare is a highly regulated industry with disintermediated decision makers and payers and end users. Okay. So I would say one of our company values that I, I really hold dear is the high road is the fast road, you know, and for us, what that means is being proactive, working with regulators, treating them with the respect we'd like them to treat us with as colleagues, as fellow scientists who want to make the world a better place and don't want to hurt people along the way. And um, don't cut corners and those will bite you. (laughs) The high road is the fast road. So those would be my two pieces of advice. If you're going to enter the startup Olympics, get a coach and make sure you're Olympic event, you know, you're not alone training for it. And don't try and cut corners, you know, being penny wise and pound foolish is just not the right way to think in this industry. It's a long term field, very collegial. It's a karma business, the reputation cultivation and community cultivation that I think comes from taking that value to heart, I I think is another one of our secret weapons. It's amazing how many, you know, how many people you bump into, it's not even six degrees no. of separation. And then people it's get like, new jobs. They're doing something different. Next thing you know, you're helping someone who you were pitching two years ago and it's karma and good people lead you to good people. And this industry is really well populated with good people who want to make the world a better place. And so, you know, they might say no to your ask this year, but in two years, maybe you'll be the one greenlighting their ask. It's just how it works. Starting to see that now being 20 years in, Seeing that start to pay off is one of the, the really joyous things about being in this industry. Just seeing how people are, you know, all, the, all my classmates, what are they doing? You know, things like that. 
When I first met you, I was blown away by the technology. Then we got the opportunity to kind of, you know, dive deep into it and uh, really blown away by just the applications and what kind of good it mm-hmm. could create in terms of for patients and that kind of thing. And now after spending, you know, a few minutes with you, I'm blown away with your leadership. Aww. So this has been Thank incredible. You. And I'm really looking forward to your products hitting the market. You know, for anybody who gets an opportunity to to speak to you and to hear and actually see, I think I've seen, I can't remember if it was on the website or in mm-hmm. the presentation or whatever, it is a little bit like looking at Wakanda technology. <laughs> it's so kind of cool. You know, it is so kind of cool. I have to tell you, I like I totally nerd out whenever I talk about this stuff that you guys thank are doing. So, so, so Nina, thank you so much for taking the time with, to speak with me. It's been a, a true honor and best of luck to you and the team. I'm really looking forward to this hit in the market. Thanks for having me. And thank you for doing all of the tireless work you do to make the world a better place. This is Day Zero, a podcast by Think Media. Subscribe to Day Zero on your favorite podcasting app or platform.